Christmas, the storm is coming fast, the day will soon be here. When those who are caught unprepared will be the first to fall, that much is clear. Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction, the Tailed Wowkey Specials, where we'll be examining the end of the world, one apocalypse at a time. And survive while there's people crying, people dying everywhere around. Hello and welcome to this super duper bonus episode of the Tayot Wowki specials. This is going to be a particularly special episode because we're going to be dealing with aliens. And so I've got a little uh, tagline to come on to the start of this episode. Someday something's coming from way out beyond the stars to kill us while we stand here. It'll store our brains in mason jars. That's from a song Lovecraft in Brooklyn by the Mountain Goats. So, aliens. The year is 1561, and the people of Nuremberg are about to witness something pretty weird. Here's a quote from a newspaper that came out at the time. In the morning of April 14th, 1561, at daybreak, between 4 and 5am, a dreadful apparition occurred on the sun. And then this was seen in Nuremberg in the city, before the gates and in the country, by many men and women. In the sun, above and below on both sides, the colour was blood. There stood a round ball of partly dull, partly black, ferrous colour. Likewise, there stood in a torus around the sun, such blood-red ones, and other balls in large number, about three in a line and four in a square, and also some alone. In between these globes there were visible a few blood-red crosses. These all started to fight amongst themselves, so that the globes, which were first in the sun, flew out to the ones standing on both sides. Besides, the globes threw back and forth among themselves, and fought vehemently with each other for over an hour. And when the conflict in and again out of the sun was the most intense, they became fatigued to such an extent that they all, as said above, fell from the sun down upon the earth as if they all burned, and they wasted away on the earth with immense smoke. After all this, there was something like a black spear, very long and thick, sighted, the shaft pointed to the east, the point pointed west. Whatever such signs mean, God alone knows. Imagine reading that report in your local newspaper. And that's how they conclude it. God alone knows. But a lot of people since have interpreted this as, well, nothing short of a UFO battle over the city of Nuremberg. Occam's Razor, the philosophy that says that the simplest explanation is often the correct one, might have something to say about that. For example, this single newspaper reporting this dramatic event, for which there are few sources, could be completely inaccurate. This could be some kind of freakish weather event. For example, there's a thing called sun dogs that can cause unusual patterns of light in the sky. They're associated with ice crystals and refraction, and they can cause things that might be similar to how this was described. And ice crystals might form under the same kind of conditions that lead to cryometeals. Now, these are an unusual but natural phenomenon in the atmosphere, where massive crystals of ice, sometimes as much as 50 kilograms in weight, can form in the atmosphere and fall from the sky. These cryometeors have been responsible for mysterious events in the past. Remember that whole idea about the perfect murder being one committed using an icicle because the murder weapon just melts away, leaving no fingerprints and no incriminating evidence? Well, this has actually happened with a mega cryometeor, which destroyed a car and then melted, leaving the horrified owner with a little explanation as to why their car had been wrecked so thoroughly. It's not impossible, then, that this is some freakish weather event, which would explain why the orbs were seen in burning rings around the sun, I'll sing the same, my dream has come. But these rings, that's what you might expect from a diffraction pattern, or refraction through ice crystals. 
And the fact that the shaft of the arrow that they talk about is pointing west to east also suggests some sort of light phenomenon as well. Or it could even be possible that this was some sort of meteor strike, maybe something pretty big fragmenting in the atmosphere, with the largest chunks causing these impacts that led to the immense smoke on the ground. This is, of course, if you take the whole account seriously and feel the need to explain it. It's only actually reported in one newspaper from 500 years ago. I'm sure if everything that was reported in newspapers 500 years ago was taken seriously and was true, we'd be in a very different, very strange world. And you see, this is my problem with aliens. I'm in an odd position, I suppose. In the Fermi and Drake episode, I explained to you my conviction that aliens are real and out there, somewhere. And the fact is, I don't think this is nearly as irrational as you might think. Because the universe is far stranger and harder to explain if there aren't alien life forms, if there never were, if we're all there is. Because then, like I say, all of our well-meaning Copernican principles, they go completely out of the window. This Copernican idea that we're nothing special, that we're just part of the galaxy, that we're just some random fragment of space where things are perfectly ordinary, this is necessary for a lot of physics. We want the laws of physics to hold throughout the world, and we want to believe that we're nothing that special. But if we're the only alien species upon billions and billions of galaxies and stars and habitable planets, suddenly it looks like, in the whole practically infinite universe, the planet Earth is the one planet out of trillions that manages to play host to life. And then you need to say that in this universe, those two numbers, the number of planets that could support life, and the probability of intelligent life emerging on a planet, cancel to give you exactly one. It just doesn't make sense, it doesn't seem very likely, unless you believe that the Earth was created by something else, by a deity, along with humans, and that that deity really, 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 really liked focusing on the details of the background as well. I mean, if we're all there is, why create so much empty space devoid of life? Or, unless of course you believe that ours is a simulated universe of planets, with simulators setting the simulation onto single-player mode, which in a lot of ways is indistinguishable from a god anyway. And then it really does just shift the question of how life came to be onto the universe of the simulator. Then of course maybe the simulators live in a universe where it's evidently teeming with all sorts of forms of life. So you see the bind that we end up in here. Of course, if you buy the whole simulation argument, then there's a pretty decent chance that we're in a universe where aliens were simulated too. I mean, why wouldn't they be? After all, think about the reasons why you might run such a simulation. Maybe you want to make a replica of your own universe and see what happens if you twiddle a few parameters and change a few factors. That would be an interesting science experiment for these simulation people. And they're not going to be too interested in developing something that's drastically different from their universe, I shouldn't think. So in that case, maybe they're simulating their ancient history. Maybe we are an ancestor simulation for these people, and we are, in fact, the civilization from a long time ago. But even so, you don't necessarily see why a simulator would be interested in creating a simulation with just one species in it. Or possibly, the whole thing is complete rubbish, there are no simulations, this is the only universe, but it should probably have some aliens in it somewhere. I think you have a lot more to explain if there are no aliens than you do if there are some somewhere, but they're just very difficult for us to contact. So then to say that I believe intelligent life exists somewhere out there, or at the very least has existed at some point, or will arise after us, 
and then also say that every UFO story is complete rubbish. Well, it might seem like a contradiction on the surface, but it's really only in the very tippy-tippy top layer of the surface. The thing is, there isn't really a contradiction between saying these things. The issue is that compared between the distance between stars and galaxies, the speed of light isn't all that fast. And the speed of light is the maximum speed limit on any information, as far as we know, including aliens, including anything you like. As we talked about in the Fermi and Drake episodes, to get to the nearest star takes light 4.4 years. The galaxy itself contains 100 billion stars, and it's 100,000 light years side to side. Thank you, Monty Python, for these round numbers. So if we fiddle our parameters in the Drake equation, to say that there are a hundred intelligent civilizations all coexisting in the galaxy at any given time after the universe has settled down a bit from its fiery beginnings. Now, Drake fiddled the equation so that there were 50,000 rather than a hundred, but you have to remember that there's a lot in the Drake equation about why intelligent life might not want to communicate with us, or how they might use different methods of communication, and we really have no idea about those numbers. Even if we never detect alien communication, then you could still never really rule out the window during which a civilization might actively try to communicate. It's too small for us to see, or that we just got unlucky, or that they don't want to talk to us. Anyway, let's assume for the sake of argument that there are a hundred alien civilizations and they all want to communicate with any other civilizations that are out there. And it makes sense too, I mean, they probably have some alien version of Breaking Bad that we've not seen yet and they probably want to see our version. But you might expect any communications to take thousands of years to reach across the void between the stars. The lower limit for what astrobiologists expect is the distance between technological civilizations is at least 100 parsecs. So this is probably using Drake's optimistic estimation. So the lower limit is 100 parsecs, which means communications take hundreds of years. Humans have only had writing for 6,000 years or so, and we've only been capable of signalling with radio in a way that may one day seem desperately primitive for a hundred odd years. So if they're looking out for signals to respond to, there's basically zero chance that they will have seen any of our broadcasts. They're certainly not watching our TV. The signals fall off like the inverse square law, so a few light years out, they're billions of times less powerful than they are on Earth and they're indistinguishable from the background radiation. Aliens would need some kind of giant radio array far bigger than any planet, and even then they'd probably just get a static fuzz and not old episodes of I Love Lucy. And that's not even taking into account the fact that these radio signals won't reach the nearest civilization for hundreds of years. So that's no good. Only very focused, concentrated, beamed radiation directed at a star with a habitable-looking planet has any hope of breaking through as a communication. In fact, we have already done this. In 1974, the very man who invented the Drake Equation, with some help from Carl Sagan and others, fired off a message to the globular cluster of stars, M13. By the way, if you're looking for pretty space pictures, I always used to advise you to Google Planetary Nebula, but then straight after you do, make sure to go ahead and Google Globular Cluster as well because those things are very, very pretty. A globular cluster is a decent target. They're essentially groups of stars that are much closer together than average. So if you're completely guessing as to whether anywhere might have a habitable planet, as we pretty much were in 1974 when we didn't know 
as much about exoplanets, planets that surround other stars, as we do today, then your best bet is actually to go for the globular cluster. Globular cluster's got lots of stars, the stars might have planets around them. It's basically a dense region of space stuff, and so if you're going to hit a civilization by mistake, you might as well hit one in a globular cluster. So we fired off this message to the globular cluster. But it will take 25,000 years to arrive. And when it does, they'll need some pretty good telescopes to distinguish it from a background signal. And far, far better ones if they're going to work out what the message actually says. And then you get to the other point. I mean, what does the message say? Communicating with aliens is always a tricky one. We try and work out what we have, might have in common, and maybe because physicists are often writing these messages, we assume that it's physics. In fact, in some ways, this is probably likely to be the only thing we do have in common with aliens, physics and mathematics. There could be all kinds of bizarre differences between us that we might not possibly comprehend. So the thing about aliens is usually they get portrayed as a sort of weird megafauna of the kind that you might find on, on a bizarro Earth, like giant lizards or something like that. But I think that's kind of unimaginative. I mean, we really have no idea what could be out there and what could have adapted to a different type of planet. But at any rate, regardless of what they're like, they might not understand any of what we were trying to tell them. So the best way to communicate with them would be through mathematics, physics, and chemistry, which we assume to be more or less the same across the universe. I mean, whatever their planet is like, they will also have gravity, and they will have understood how it works if they're capable of communicating with us as a civilization. So what we normally do when we try and communicate with them is we list some numbers for the aliens. We give them some pictures of humans, and we give them the chemical formula for DNA, which could be of interest if it turns out they're made of something similar, if it turns out like we believe at the moment that you need these complex proteins, amino acids and things, to genuinely create life. And helpfully, we also provided them with a little sketch of the solar system, with an indication of which planet sent the message. Or, if you're paranoid, we sent them an invasion map. But these kind of pictorial and mathematical communications are our best hope, really. We should send them a Mandelbrot set or a fractal to show them that we have an appreciation for the finer things in mathematics. By the way, I have to go on a brief aside here, because one of the other far, far less likely to be successful attempts at communication was the golden record on the Voyager probe, which is currently sort of exiting the solar system. So the reason I say that it's sort of exiting the solar system is that there's plenty and plenty of definitions about where the solar system actually ends, and some of those boundaries technically move and change with time. So depending on who's counting, the Voyager probe has exited the solar system several times, as Randall Monroe in XKCD Comics pointed out. So assuming that aliens have vinyl, and who knows, alien hipsters may well be a thing, they'll be treated to greetings in all kinds of human languages, which will all be equally incomprehensible. In fact, if anything, if you think about how our scientists try to decode a new language, what you need is a really, really big sample of one language with consistent rules and vocabulary, rather than loads and loads of languages. I mean, that's just confusing. But anyway, how it ended up working out was that they only came up with this idea of putting up messages, recorded messages, in the last few months of the project. And so they had to flag down whoever they could find who was a native speaker of the language concerned. 
and they just told them, please record a short greeting for extraterrestrials. They didn't give them a script, they just said, what do you want to say to the aliens, to these people who could speak in their native languages? Which led to some pretty weird stuff being sent into space on the Voyager probe's golden record, depending on the sense of humour of the speaker. So, for example, the Bengali speaker was pretty positive. Hello? Let there be peace everywhere. The Hungarian greeting shows a degree of deserved pride in their notoriously difficult-to-learn language. Hi, Victoria. In Hungarian, they said, We are sending greetings in the Hungarian language to all peace-loving beings in the universe. It's like, yep, greetings, and they're in Hungarian, so deal with that. The Gujarati speaker was maybe feeling a little bit lonely. They said, Greetings from a human being of the earth. Please contact Timmy. Darling Timmy. Please phone. The Greeks, meanwhile, display that they're secretly spoiling for a fight. Quote, Greetings to you, whoever you are. We come in friendship to those who are friends. Yeah, step to me and I'll end you. Aliens, prepare to be Hellenized. I don't know if Indonesia quite got the memo of what they were supposed to say, but the greeting is very sweet. They went for, good night, ladies and gentlemen, goodbye, and see you next time. Um, sleep well, aliens. Whoever was in charge of Sweden's message decided to make it all about themselves. In Swedish, it says, Greetings from a computer programmer in the little university town of Ithaca on the planet Earth. So, you know, not a message from the whole species or on behalf of even just the people who speak Swedish. Just you, a computer programmer. Okay, fine. Leave us all out of it then. The Chinese extend a bold invitation on behalf of the whole species. In Mandarin, the greeting said, Hope everyone's well. We are thinking about you all. Please come to visit when you have some time. You know, if you're not too busy with alien stuff. The Rajasthani speaker, on the other hand, is probably a bit more of an alien sceptic, because they sound way, way less keen on any sort of visit. In Rajasthani they said, Hello to everyone. We are happy here, and you be happy there. I've drawn this line down the middle of the galaxy, and you can stay on that side. Now, I honestly can't tell if the Turkish one is like a tongue-in-cheek joke or not, but either way, I love it. In Turkish, they went for, Dear Turkish-speaking friends, May the honours of the morning be upon your heads. Dear Turkish-speaking friends. I love that. Do you think they were just taking the mickey out of the guy who's come and said, you need to record a greeting to aliens? And the Turkish guy's just there like, I don't think they'll speak Turkish. And he's like, no, no, it's important we get as many languages as possible. And so he's just sarcastically gone, dear Turkish-speaking friends. But everyone's favourite message on the Voyager probe goes to the Amoy Min dialect from China. Uh, the native speaker here went for an interesting route. They said, Friends of space, how are you all? Have you eaten yet? Come visit us if you have time. So yeah, you have essentially invited the aliens to eat us. And when they do, we all know who to blame. It's okay, because NASA justified this process beyond just giving nerds like me something fun to laugh about. What they said was, um, After all, by sending a spaceship out of our solar system, we are making an effort to deprovincialize, to rise above our nationalistic interests, and join a commonwealth of spacefaring societies, if one exists. 
but what they also said was that uh, we were principally concerned with the needs of people on Earth during this section of the recording. We recorded messages from populations all over the globe, each representative speaking in the language of his or her people, instead of sending greetings in one or two languages accompanied by keys for their decipherment. So basically, really, those pragmatists at NASA knew something they could never admit to all of the poor people they corralled into recording greetings for aliens from outer space. The chances of aliens ever detecting even a powerful radio signal, travelling at the speed of light, aimed directly towards a likely star. Those chances are minuscule. So the chances of them catching a physical probe, dwarfed by the great vacuum of space, just a small satellite that we've thrown up there, aimed out way out into the wild great yonder. A probe that will take 40,000 years to even approach another star. It's so, so unlikely that this will ever happen. The cross-section for capturing a tiny pebble that we've flung out into space is, is just minuscule. In all likelihood, the Voyager probe will drift forever, a speck in the eye of the cosmos, unseen by everyone, until it crashes into something and disintegrates or until bombardment by micrometeorites destroys it. I actually read a very interesting report in The New Scientist a few years ago that said that if human civilization ended tomorrow, the Voyager probe would probably be the last thing that remains of us, because it's projected, as long as it doesn't hit anything, which it probably won't, to last longer than all of the stuff that exists on Earth. You know, all the buildings, all the cars, all the trees... So there's a very real possibility, given that we're talking about a timescale of millions of billions of years, that if humans do manage to destroy ourselves and end our own civilization in the next few hundred or thousand years, the Voyager probe and those greetings could be the last remnants that there ever was such a thing as humanity. And they're very unlikely to be detected. And it's probably for the best, because after all, based on those messages they'll probably get the very accurate impression that humans are a confused, hot mess. But this is all for the same reason that all UFO reports are so damn unlikely. Sending physical objects through the vast sweep of outer space is really, really difficult, and it's far from the most efficient way to communicate. So what you've just listened to is the first half of the episode that I've recorded on aliens, and I figured that a good way to help people support the show would be to make the second half available as a paid download. So in this way, you help me cover my coasting costs and the costs of books and, you know, maybe a little bit of recompense for all the time that I spend scripting and recording and so on. And in return, you get something more than just a straight donation. So I'm going to be releasing another episode shortly, which will explain how you can download the second half of the Alien episode. And uh, hopefully this has given you a taster for the stuff that's to come. In the rest of the episode, I'm going to talk about specific examples of UFO encounters and why they're probably not true. And I'm going to deal with some of the things that will touch on the search for life and SETI and how that's been going. And uh, hopefully you'll find it as interesting to listen to as I did to record. You better make some preparations, there's no time for Our theme music is Get Ready for the Apocalypse by Astrometrics. Do get ready.